0: All right, Romans chapter 9, we left off last week in an odd place. With the Apostle Paul, it's often very challenging to find good stopping points because he is just like one run-on sentence and one thought runs into another. So I fear that having stopped at the end of verse 24, as we pick up in verse 25 of chapter 9, it won't really make sense if we just jump right into it, especially if you're fairly new to Calvary Chapel, I will say that as we've been studying through the book of Romans, I will remind you, the overall theme has been God's amazing grace. We've looked at that in a variety of ways on through chapter eight. Now we find ourselves in chapter nine, which is part of a larger section. Chapters nine, 10, and 11 are all kind of lumped in under one topic, symbolized by the synagogue of Israel. Remember, we've looked at different buildings that symbolize different sections of the book of Romans. So, the section that we're in now is the synagogue of Israel and how God's grace is applied to their lives and God's plan for them. So, chapters 9, 10, and 11 deal with this question if God's truth is so relevant to our lives and God's love is unconditional and, and we're secure in Him, then what about Israel? How in the world did they miss out on their own Savior? And so Paul takes a couple of chapters to talk about that very thing. Now, what I don't want you to do, as I said in my email, is don't go to sleep and think, well, I'm not a child of Israel. I'm not a Jew. What does this have to do with me? So I'll tell you, it has a lot to do with you. Because number one, we're learning about God. We're just learning some facts and some information about the character and the nature of God. And number two, the Jews, when you boil it down, we're going to learn what the problem was. Why did they miss out on their Savior? because the reason they missed out on the Savior is the same reason a lot of people still miss out on the Savior today. Not Jewish people, although they do, it still applies to them, but sometimes church people miss out on the Savior. And it can be for the same reason that the Jews did. So what is that reason? What are these characteristics of God? That's what we're gonna talk about today. So a quick rundown through chapter nine, the big issue in chapter nine, the big theme of chapter nine was God reminding the people in Rome that God has a plan for Israel. He always had a plan for them and he's worked out his plan and his perfect plan has worked out for them because of his sovereignty. We talked about the word sovereignty and it means, anybody remember from last week? Sovereignty means absolute power. Doesn't that make sense? I mean, God has absolute power over his creation. I mean, we talked about that last week. We enjoy areas of our lives. We have absolute power to make decisions. Now we get confused about or nervous about absolute power because we're used to absolute power being abused, used for evil and selfishness. So when we hear about absolute power, we get a little edgy about that. But remember, part of God's sovereignty is part of God's character and it's not separated from his unconditional love, and his grace, and his mercy, and his justice. So when God has absolute power, not only that, also his knowledge of all things. So his absolute power is exercised and played out in fulfilling his plans according to his unconditional love, his calling, his knowledge of the end from the beginning, his justice, and his mercy. So all that gets lumped together. And so the challenge of that is for us is, Sometimes we want to question God. God, I don't get what you're doing. Try explaining to your six-year-old why you took a new job. I mean, I just wanted to run this by you. I'm thinking about a new job. You know, what do you think? Is that typically something you would do in your household? If it is, we got family classes for you. Because a six-year-old can't possibly fathom all of the things that you have in mind when you make a decision to take a new job. I mean, there's so many things that factor into that decision that a six-year-old brain just cannot comprehend. A six-year-old wants to know, who am I playing with next? Where's my video game? What time is lunch? You know, that's the six-year-old brain. So they're on a whole different level. And if that's between you and a six-year-old child, think about between God and us. Think about the great information and knowledge gap that exists between the maker of the four-pound supercomputer in our head and the ones who have the supercomputer there's a huge, huge gap between what God knows and who he is and his perfect character, his perfect love and his perfect judgment and his perfect justice and his perfect grace. So we can trust him. And that's the point of Romans chapter nine is we have to trust God and his plan to carry out his mercy and judgment according to his perfect will. Like we may not get it. We don't understand all these things. And again, as Paul goes through Romans 9, so we learn that God is sovereign and we're challenged by that. We're challenged to say, yeah, God, we have to trust him. Even when we don't understand what he's doing. Just like you have to tell your six-year-old, you just got to trust me. A six-year-old can't understand why they have to go to bed early. Trust me, it's going to make my life easier if you go to bed early. I need a break. So the sovereignty issue, you know, you just go, we're like the clay and God is like the potter and the clay can have no concept of what the potter's plans are. And sometimes the potter's plans don't line up with what the clay thinks should be done. We have our plans, right? We think we know how God should do it. And if I was God, here's what I would do. Oh boy, we're glad you are not God. Balancing the checkbook is hard enough, let alone running the universe. Because the challenge of Romans 9, and I think this chapter is avoided because people have this concept that Romans 9, oh no, that's the chapter about predestination and election and are people double predestined? Does God predestine some to be saved and some to be damned and, and everybody argues about this? So we just leave it alone. And I think that's a huge mistake. And I think it's a severe misunderstanding of what this section is meant to do. Because God is sovereign, his absolute power. And in his absolute power, he has chosen to work through Israel. He's taught them it's through his mercy and not through their works. He's taught them that he can have mercy because he's sovereign. We don't worry about his sovereignty and judgment. Sometimes we like it when God judges certain people, especially if we don't like them. Especially when, oh, they're getting what they deserve. Yes, right? That's that little wicked part of us. But the problem comes when God says he wants to have mercy on somebody that we think deserves judgment. That's the part of God's sovereignty that the Jews were struggling with. They resisted God in two specific ways that are dealt with in chapter nine. They resisted God in their own need for mercy. You see, they thought they were a special class. In the Bible, we meet really two groups of people in this chapter, especially we meet Jews and Gentiles. So we understand Jews, nation of Israel, descendants of Jacob and the 12 tribes of Israel. We got that. But what in the world is a Gentile? That's not gentle, it's Gentile. And that just means everybody else. It just means the nations, every other nation, every other people beside the Jews. So there's Jew and then there's everybody else. And the Jews felt like they had a special place with God and that everybody else was separated from God. And the only way to get to God was to become a Jew like them so that then you could come to God like them through their law and through their spiritual systems that they had developed. And God says, actually, I'm going to extend mercy to everybody else as well. Remember how freaked out we got when we read Jacob, I have loved and Esau, I have hated. Remember, we just go, ah, Jacob, I have loved and Esau, I have hated. Well, when we look at the Gentiles that have been saved, we think about it was Isaac and Ishmael, right? The two children of Abraham and God chose to work through Isaac and not Ishmael. That makes Isaac part of the line of the Jews. And that makes Ishmael a Gentile. Ah, And then there was Jacob and Esau. Jacob, the father of the 12 tribes of Israel. But then Esau became the father of the Edomites. Are they Jews? Say no. That makes them Gentiles. And then there was Pharaoh and the whole thing with Egypt. So Egyptians, are they Jews? No. Do you know any Egyptian Christians today? Yeah, we've had some here at the church. You see, God in his sovereignty and in his mercy, although he chose and Israel benefited from his mercy throughout history, what if God chooses to elect some of the people that they didn't think should be elected? And he chooses to extend his mercy to the Edomites, to children of Esau, and the children of Ishmael, and the children of, of Egyptian descent, both Jew and Gentile. So that kind of gives us this background. They rejected or resisted God's mercy to them that they thought they had a special place where they had earned God's favor. God owed them one. But on the other hand, they also resisted God's desire to be merciful to the other nations. And these were the two resistances that Israel had. And that's why Paul writes these things. So verse 22, we'll pick up there. He says, what if God, wanting to show his wrath and to make his power known, endured with much long suffering the vessels of wrath prepared for destruction? So just stop right there. So what if God, in his sovereignty, wanting to show his wrath and make his power known? So God is powerful and God also has wrath against sin. We started that with chapter one. We read about that. The wrath of God is revealed from heaven against unrighteousness. So God has wrath against sin and he has power to deal with that. And sometimes he chooses to show his power. Just as we talked about Pharaoh in Egypt, when he was setting the Israelites free, didn't God choose to show his power through the the great miracles and the, the plagues and all that that came about in Egypt, God showed his power. But did he just wipe out Pharaoh first plague? How many plagues were there? There were 10. Did you ever think about that? Why in the world were there 10 plagues? There could have been one. One plague, Pharaoh, you're done, boom, people free, go. But instead, God would bring a plague and Pharaoh would cry out for help and he would repent seemingly. And then God would relent from the plague. The plague would go away. And then he would harden his heart again. So 10 times that happens. So through Pharaoh, you know, we learn that ultimately, if you continually resist the mercy of God, what you end up in is experiencing his power in judgment. And God will wait. Isn't that what it says there? Look back at verse 22. What if God wanted to show his wrath and make his power known? Instead, endured with much long suffering the vessels of wrath By the way, prepared is reflexive. I mentioned that last week, who prepared themselves for destruction. That's what sin does. Sin prepares you for destruction. You choose to sin and that prepares you to be destroyed. Matter of fact, let me just step into Ephesians for just a second here. Ephesians chapter two says this, and you he made alive who were dead in trespasses and sins in which you once walked according to the course of this world, according to the prince of the power of the air, The spirit who now works in the sons of disobedience, among whom also we all once conducted ourselves in the lusts of our flesh, fulfilling the desires of the flesh and of the mind, and were by nature, catch it, children of wrath, just as the others. So we were by our very sinful nature, children awaiting the wrath of God. And so back here, he says, the children of wrath, they prepared themselves destruction. But instead of destroying them right away, instead of God being glorified in his power and judgment, what's he choose to do? What's it say right there? He was long suffering. Isn't that what we learn in 2 Peter? He says, God is not slack concerning his promises, but he's long suffering. He's so patient. Why? Because the heart of God is that nobody would perish. That's what we learn. God doesn't take pleasure in the death of the wicked, the Bible tells us. God's desire, he doesn't wait like so many people think, I'm going to go to church and God's just waiting to drop the hammer on you. No, he's not. He's waiting for you to accept and receive his mercy and be saved. And he's waiting and he's waiting and he's waiting for you to believe and accept the mercy he extends. So God is patient. And if you resist that, eventually the time of judgment will come and God's power will be shown in judgment. But there's another way that God is glorified, where God is shown as awesome, and that's through his mercy. You know, he's long-suffering with the vessels of wrath prepared for destruction. And why is he long-suffering? Why does he wait? So that he might make known the riches of his glory on the vessels of mercy, which he had prepared beforehand for glory. Even us, we called, me and you, not of the Jews only, but also of the Gentiles. So in these vessels of wrath, there are both Jew and Gentile. And in these vessels of mercy that are prepared for glory, there are both Jew and Gentile. The apostle Paul is a Jew writing this. His life radically transformed when he met Jesus Christ or when Jesus Christ met him. And so the cool thing about this is God, instead of destroying something and being glorified that way, because you're never going to question, no one's ever going to go, well, God, I think you were wrong. When the whole thing is played out and we see God's plan unveiled, no one will go, ah, look at that, God blew it. You're going to go, oh yeah, now I see it. God was totally justified in his decisions, but he's also totally justified in extending mercy. Maybe some of you have been experienced or have experience with fixing up old houses or fixing up old cars. Now, if you see a house, let's take a house, for example, you're driving down the road somewhere in Flew Valley County and you see this house and it is just dilapidated and broken down and the paneling is falling off and there's trees and weeds growing everywhere. You know what I'm saying, the paint is all worn off. The roof is rusted and, or shingles missing, it's just a mess. And then two builders are sitting there looking at the house going, uh, one goes, you know, I think we should just bulldoze it. Yeah, you know, a bulldozer is a powerful piece of equipment, isn't it? I mean, you can take that house and you can level it in a moment with the power of a bulldozer. And so one builder says, I think it's done. I think we should just destroy it and move on. Would they be right to do that? I mean, it's unsafe. It's unfit to live in, right? Would they be okay to to have the sovereignty to destroy that if they wanted to? Yeah, it was broken down. It was a mess. It was dangerous. But the other builder says, you know what? I'll tell you what. Give me a couple years. I think I can make something of this. And he chooses that building, I'm going to make something of that building. And so a couple of years pass and the first builder who was going to bulldoze it now comes by and he sees that house. Oh my, would you look at that place? I mean, it's got fresh paint. Every, nothing is sagging. Everything is looking good. It's all level and straight and there's trees planted out in the yard. And, and then you walk in the front door and you go, oh, there's light and the walls are painted. There's furniture and a family is living here now. It's inhabitable again. Doesn't that take in some ways more power and give more honor to the builder who, instead of destroying the building, actually refurbished it, rebuilt it, made it new again? You guys watch more home and garden TV than you know what to do with, right? You love those shows. What is it about home and garden TV? What is it about, you know, move that bus that we love? Because you love it. You know it. You love to see something get transformed, And you follow those people on TV. You go, you know their names. I don't even know their names. But see that house, all of us in here that have been saved, every one of us, that was our house. That was your house, broken down, dysfunctional, creepy, filled with spiders and rats, filled with junk, cobwebs, dirt, and you couldn't clean it up yourself. And so God says, you know what? I'm going to do something with that life. Why did he choose me? I don't know. Because he's sovereign. I can't take credit for it. All I brought to the party was a broken down house, a broken life. All I brought was sin. And God came in. God moved in. The builder moves into the house. And he doesn't start on the outside. He starts on the inside. And then after he gets done with the inside, all of a sudden the outside. And that's not just for Jewish people. That's for everybody else. That's what's so beautiful about Romans chapter 9 is in his sovereignty, God has made the plan for salvation not based on works, not based on you fixing yourself up, but on you believing and letting him in. And when you let him in, then he does the work and that is open to everybody. And that is what the Jews hated. They couldn't believe that somehow that God would let the nasty idol-worshipping pagans come to him. And so God says to the Jews through Paul, he says, wait a second, speaking of those nasty idol-worshiping pagans that you're talking about, let's see what your Bible says about you. Look at verse 25. As he also says in Hosea, this is the Old Testament book of Hosea, he quotes it, I will call them my people who were not my people, and her beloved who was not my beloved, and it shall come to pass in the place where it was said to them, you are not my people, there they shall be called sons of the living God. So when I first read that on a cursory reading of this, I thought, oh, clearly he's talking about the Gentiles. And Paul is saying, yeah, the Gentiles, they were not God's people, but God made them his people. And now Jew and Gentile in the church together. But then I went back to Hosea and I read the context. If you're familiar with the book of Hosea, remember that Hosea the prophet has to live out um, an illustration for God. He marries a prostitute who commits adultery and he has to keep taking her back. And they have three children together and This is a living example of Israel and how they had not been a wife to God, how they had walked away from God. They were committing spiritual adultery as if they weren't his people. And that's what Hosea is saying, that God says, I'll call them my people who were not my people. He's talking about the Jews and by extension, the Gentiles too. So he's saying to the Jews, look, you needed the same thing the Gentiles, that you were just like Gentiles in that you were worshiping idols and not walking with me either. So how can you say these other people shouldn't get saved when you needed the very thing yourself? And God said he was going to take care of that call. Those that weren't his people, he was going to call them sons. Isaiah verse 27, he quotes Isaiah 10, 22 and 23. Again, concerning Israel, he says, though the number of the children of Israel be as the sand of the sea, that's a lot. The remnant will be saved. That's a little. For he will finish the work and cut it short in righteousness because the Lord will make a short work upon the earth. So that speaks of the Babylonian captivity that a remnant will return. So although Israel's history is very spotty and they had been disobedient and God had told them that although there's this whole big nation of Israel, only a small portion of them will get saved. The apostles, the early church book of Acts, we see the day of Pentecost. Those are all Jews that get saved. Look through the book of Acts. You watch as Paul goes to synagogues. Many times he gets run out of town. He gets rejected by the Jews, but some believe. But the Gentiles, the non-Jews, they welcomed the message of the cross and of Jesus the Savior. They welcomed it like crazy. And so he's showing them that there is God in his mercy has left them a remnant. Verse 29, he adds to that. And he said, as Isaiah said before, and he's using their scriptures to build his case. Unless the Lord of the Sabbath had left us a seed, we would have become like Sodom and we would have been made like Gomorrah. Now, again, that's Isaiah. How many of you know the story of Sodom and Gomorrah? Even if you've never read your Bible, you know what happened in Sodom and Gomorrah. Total destruction. Fire and brimstone rained down from heaven. Complete destruction. So what did God just tell the Jews? Hey, listen, if it wasn't for his mercy... In leaving us a seed, a little part out of which grows something new, it's like Israel was a forest, and they would have been completely destroyed, except God left one seed from which to regrow them. And that was the seed of those that would believe by faith, those Jews that would come to believe in their Savior by faith and not through works. Unless God had done it, they would have been completely destroyed. They needed the same mercy. So now Paul's kind of showing the Jews like, he's got to humble them, you know? How many of you know that God can't do a work through you until he does a work in you? And God wants to do a work through Israel, but he couldn't because they needed to have a work done in them. And the work done in them for them to recognize and stop resisting that they needed the same mercy and grace that the Gentiles did. And so Paul says in verse 30, so what do we say to this? What do we do with that? And Paul tells us, he says, I'll tell you exactly what you do with it. This is exactly what's going on. The Gentiles, remember, everybody else, children of Esau, children of Ishmael, Egyptians, Americans, Chinese, you name it. The Gentiles who did not pursue righteousness, a right relationship with God, moral righteousness, who did not pursue righteousness, have attained to righteousness, even the righteousness of faith. So righteousness, to be righteous is to be perfect before God, morally, spiritually perfect before God. And the Gentiles, the the non-Jews, they were just worshiping their idols. They were living in sin and living in idolatry. And, you know, you look back into the Roman period that Paul was preaching and Rome itself. I mean, the level of sexual immorality, the level of drunkenness, and I could go on in detail about some of the, the things that were existing in Roman culture, uh, no different than our day though. They were not thinking every day when I got up, okay, I want to please God today. So they weren't pursuing. The word pursue means to run. They weren't chasing after this moral perfection, but they attained it. How did they get it? Like if they weren't chasing after it, you know how when your kids were little, like they started to get older and you got to like get them exposed to chicken pox. Do your parents still do that? Because it's like bad if kids get chicken pox late in life or If you don't get it when you're young, then it causes problems when you get older. Why why are you guys looking at me like that? Would my mom do something wrong? So anyway, so parents, when their kids start to go, like we got to expose them to chicken pox and they're trying, they're trying, they try to get their kids chicken pox. But then some kids just get it all by themselves. They go to school and they just come home and they got it. They didn't even try to get it and they got it. And Paul is saying that that is kind of what this righteousness is like. The Gentiles, they weren't even really trying, but what happened is they heard the message they heard a simple message of Jesus Christ, the Savior, about their sin and a cross and a resurrection and the power of God and a new life, and they just said, yeah, we want that. That's what we want. And they forsook their old ways and their magic and their all their nonsense, and they bought in. They believed it. And they didn't have all the background. They didn't have the scriptures. They didn't have the history. They didn't have the priesthood, nothing else. They just, that's how I got saved. Is that how you got saved? I grew up going to church. Like I tell people, I had a drug problem. My parents drugged me to church when I was growing up. Look, I went all the way through youth group. I got confirmed and that was it. That was it. And the only reason I went to youth group is for two reasons. You ready for them? Girls and spaghetti. That's why I went to youth group, girls and spaghetti. Living my own life, living for myself. And all of a sudden, you hear the message of the gospel. Sometimes God preaches it right to your heart, like he did mine. Sometimes it comes at a Billy Graham crusade. Sometimes it comes just sitting in church on a Sunday morning. But you hear the message, and you're like, well, nothing else matters. Like, nothing else matters. All that matters is Jesus Christ and his sacrifice for me, that I can be forgiven. I have a way to deal with the shame and the guilt that's been piled up in my life. And that's why it says the righteousness of faith, that God, when you say, I believe you, I trust you to do for me what I couldn't do for myself. God credits to you complete and full righteousness. He gives you a complete and utterly perfect standing before him. It's as if you lived Jesus's life. How perfect was Jesus? Perfect, perfect. You get that righteousness. You can't get that on your own. You can't get that. You can't earn that. You can't achieve that. It only can come as a gift. And that's how they got it. They believed it and they got it on the righteousness of faith. That's the kind of righteousness they got by believing, by trusting God. But Israel, pursuing the law of righteousness, did you notice that a little bit different language there? Israel was pursuing a set of rules and behaviors and external observances, traditions that they were pursuing 613 of them so that they would then earn their standing before God. And then you tell that person, now, wait a second, you know, here's a group of people over here that didn't know what kind of clothes to wear. They didn't know to wear, they didn't know they had to wear a suit to church. They came in whatever they had. They didn't know they had to carry a King James Bible. They didn't know anything. They didn't know to bow their head when they prayed. They didn't know anything. They heard the message and boom, they got saved. They agreed, they believed, they trusted. But the Jews say, we got this whole history of traditions. I mean, we got our traditions. A number of years ago, we were having communion here. Maybe some of you remember this, but for some strange reason, uh, I was just leading people in communion and I picked up the cup and I said, this is the blood of Christ shed for you. And we all took it. And then I got the bread and I said, this is the body of Christ broken for you. And the same reaction you're having now is the same reaction everybody had then. Wait a second, Pastor, that's backwards. right? There's a way you're supposed to do communion. It's the body first and then the cup. That's the way it is in the Bible. It has to be that way. And so I watched people as I, and I realized what I had done. I'm like, oh, so we just kind of rolled with it. And as people were eating the bread, I, I could see this, this concerned look coming over people's faces like, I don't know if it's going to work. Does it still apply? I mean, something is wrong or we're in jeopardy now. But you know that feeling, we, we're creatures of habit. We get into our routines and then what happens subtly or not so subtly You begin to trust in your routine and not in the Lord. Now that doesn't make routines and traditions are not wrong. The Jews had substituted tradition for relationship with God. We decide we don't want God's sovereignty. We don't want his righteousness. We want to develop our own system. So they had a whole religious system, just like today in the church. Today in the church, there's people that are just living for the religious system. I feel so bad for people that do that. Because they go to church on Sunday morning, not because they want to go, but because they're afraid not to. See, they trust in the routine of, I'm afraid not to go. What's going to happen? How's my day going to go if I don't? God's going to get me. God loves you unconditionally. He's not looking to drop the hammer on you. He is with you. He is for you. Now, I'm not saying we don't need to be in church. Church is a family. There's reasons we come, but not because we're afraid of the guilt not because we're afraid that God is going to punish us if we don't come. That's superstition. How many of you are still afraid to walk under a ladder? You go, oh, I'm going to walk around. You believe that there's a God of ladders and that the God of ladders doesn't like it when people walk under them and that that God is going to see that you walked under that ladder and he's going to punish you for it. That's superstition. Many say that New Testament Phariseeism was idolatry that the Jews were walking in idolatry. It looked spiritual. It looked godly. It had an outward appearance of godliness, but it lacked power and it lacked substance. And I'll tell you what it lacked. It lacked heart. God wasn't concerned with their external observances. God was concerned with their hearts. How many of you know you can do the right thing for the wrong reason? There's a little boy who got in trouble at his house. We'll go back to that little six-year-old again. He was troubled from the beginning of the sermon. And he gets in trouble. And so his mom, dad, they put him in timeout. And he does what he's asked to, goes over, he gets in that timeout chair and he's got that face, you know, the face kids can make. Gets in his timeout chair and he sits there and he folds his arms and he says, I'm sitting down on the outside, but I'm standing up on the inside. You can do the right thing with the wrong heart. And so the Jews had developed their own law of righteousness. And because that, because that's how they wanted to come to God, they didn't get it. They couldn't even keep their own rules. They couldn't be morally perfect. And that was the point. But they said, no, we're determined to earn our way to heaven through our observances, through our rituals, through our perfect attendance, through all these things. And he says, why did they miss it? Not because they weren't elect, not because they weren't chosen. See, we go from God's sovereignty to man's responsibility, right? Do You see that? He says, they missed it because they didn't seek it by faith. They had a responsibility to come to God by faith. And some of the Jews did. Many of them did. But the Gentiles were following and hearing like crazy. They did not seek it by faith. They didn't trust God. See, they trusted themselves. They trusted their rituals and not the cross and not God. They didn't seek it by faith, but as it were by the works of the law, for they stumbled at the stumbling stone as it is written. And again, a quote from Isaiah Behold, I lay in Zion a stumbling stone and a rock of offense. Whoever believes on him will not be put to shame. So the stumbling stone, who is this? This is Jesus. He's been seen as the rock and the stumbling stone. So it's pictured as if here's Israel. They're pursuing, they're chasing after like a runner going to the goal, like getting to that finish line. They're pursuing this law of righteousness. And then God inserts, whoop, here's Jesus. And instead of stopping and hugging and falling on that stone for help, what did they do? Keeping their eyes on what they were doing, on what they wanted, they tripped over. Boom, they stumbled, they fell, and they didn't recover. Jesus is a stumbling block to people who want to earn salvation because it's too easy. It can't be that easy. Today, try telling someone that's grown up in a religious system, grown up Catholic or grown up in a denominational system where, where there's emphasis on the traditions, Try telling them that this person over here, before they ever take communion, before they ever get baptized, before they ever do anything right or wrong, before they cut their hair, before they stop smoking, before they stop this or stop that, before they get their act cleaned up, that they can hear the message of the gospel, they can hear about their sins being forgiven, they can believe it, and they can be saved. Right there, in jail, in prison, wherever you are. The religious person says, that can't be true. You mean I've spent all my life doing this thing and that person can just get saved and be saved just like me on the same level. Yep, that's exactly what we're saying. And in fact, it's the real subtlety of religion is it sometimes inoculates you from salvation. You think that you're saved because you have a religious looking system in your life and you can have a religious system and still be far from God. Isn't that what Jesus said about the Jews? they worship me with their lips you can come and sing the songs but their heart is far from me you see god's always and ever been concerned with your heart that's what he wants that's where the relationship occurs in your heart so they missed it they stumbled over the ease over all of their all their traditions and you're going to tell us all of our traditions and a gentile can just be saved by believing it was hard to believe they couldn't buy it so brethren he says verse 1 of chapter 10 Brethren, my heart's desire and prayer to God for Israel is that they may be saved. You got a prayer like that somewhere in your heart? Oh, my heart's desire for my neighbors is that they'd be saved. My heart's desire is for the religious, that they would be saved. And again, when I use the word religious, what you have to understand is that the word religious comes from a Latin word, religio, and it means to relink. Religion represents an understanding of a separation between God and man And religion is man's attempt to bridge the gap through his or her good works to God. The problem is there's never enough good works that you can do to bridge that gap. You have to be perfect. So all the perfect people, please stand up. That's the problem. None of us can be perfect. And that's what it takes. And so religion attempts to bridge that gap through our works, never knowing if we've done enough. People that have a works-based or performance-based religion they never know if they've done. Are you going to heaven? I don't know. Don't had a bad day yesterday. Whew, not sure. Uh, hanging into balance. You as a Christian, as a believer and truster in the finished work of the cross can say confidently that I am going to spend eternity in the house of the Lord, not because of what I've done, but because of the Savior who rescued me by his mercy, period. And so we have desire for people to know the Lord. Paul has desire for his fellow countrymen. He says, for I bear them witness, that they have a zeal for God, hang with me a little bit longer, they have a zeal for God, but not according to knowledge. So he compliments them. He says, look, these Jews, we go to Israel as we travel and and we see the zeal, the passion, the strictness, of uh, worship of the Jew. I mean, they've got the, they wear the right clothes and they're fastidious about that and they've got the things they wrap around their arms and the thing they wear on their head and they've got the whole, they pray a certain number of times and they got to do it a certain way and a certain, it's all very ritualistic and they have a zeal for God. But he says it's not according to knowledge and the word is epigenosis, which means precise knowledge. There's a lot of people that have a zeal for God. Muslims have a zeal for God. The terrorists have a zeal for God. Jehovah's Witnesses have a zeal for God. A lot of people have a zeal for God. But I learned the truth about zeal without knowledge when I was coaching soccer. When I coached soccer, I coached little kids for a long time. And when the little kids play, we call it banana ball because they just run around in a big bunch all over the field. They don't know about positions. They don't know nothing. They're just chasing that ball. And then one kid gets the ball, right? And he doesn't look around. He's running with the ball. But where's he going, gang? Gang. Maybe it's peewee football going in the wrong direction. And everybody on the sidelines is waving, no, that way, that way. And he doesn't. he's not looking, he doesn't care, just going. And you learn the lesson is it doesn't matter how fast you're running with the ball if you're going in the wrong direction. Isn't that a great lesson? If I need to go see a surgeon, if I need surgery, and I'm going to go meet with my surgeon, I want a guy that's got both zeal and knowledge. I don't want a surgeon that has a lot of zeal but doesn't know anatomy. He just likes to cut stuff. You go into his office and he's got scalpels all lined up, drooling. Ah, glad you're here. Uh, <laughs> but how much worse when it comes to your spiritual life, to have a passion but have no idea what you're doing or why you're doing it. You ever found yourself in that place? I know pastors. They're in ministry. they have a zeal but no idea what they're supposed to do other than lead people through rituals. Zeal without knowledge is dangerous. You know, we might feel bad for them. Oh, that's so sad. They just didn't know. Hey, wait, look at verse three. For being ignorant of God's righteousness, perfection, and seeking to establish their own righteousness, they have not submitted to the righteousness of God. It wasn't that they didn't know. They'd established their own system that they were perfectly happy with. And you know what they got? They got a lot of glory from people, and that's what they wanted. Their religious system made other people go ooh and ah, but it wasn't impressive to God. They cared about things that God did not care about. God cared about things that they didn't care about, and they didn't know God. That was the problem, and they didn't care to know God. They were happy with their system. Their system was self-supporting, and they could trust in their system, and it kept them from actually knowing God today, when we go to Israel, it's very hard to witness to Jews. Very hard. For Christ, verse 4 says, and we'll end with this, for Christ is the end of the law for righteousness to everyone who believes. The end is the word telos, where we get the word telescope. It means the aim or the purpose or that which brings something to a close. Once you believe, once you trust You get to step out of that whole workspace, performance-based thing. You get to come to church because you love to, not because you have to. You get to read your Bible because you want to, not because you have to. You get to give to the Lord because you get to, because it's out of the fullness of a relationship with God, not because I'm checking it off a list because I feel guilty and, and worried and fearful if I don't do it. When you transfer from law to grace, it changes your life. It is the end of all that nonsense. We just get to enjoy our loving relationship with our Father in heaven who loves us and gave his life for us.